first of all, I feel very... You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com Welcome to Morph Mom Moments. And it's an absolute honor tonight. I My guest is the internationally best-selling author, Allison Richmond. I could not be more grateful and excited to speak with her tonight and to have her here tonight. Well, technically have her here tonight. Um, it, it's it's three, f- through my phone. <laughs> so I, I wish in person. Um, but uh, Allison Richmond is the author of five, now six novels. Her most recent novel, The Velvet Hours, is out. And we're going to discuss her journey, her novels, how you become an internationally best-selling author, and just how motherhood affects all of this as well. Um, Before I get to that, and I know you're all waiting for Allison and not myself, but I promise this will be a very quick introduction into Morph Mom and Morph Mom Moments and exactly what it is you're listening to. Um, My name is Kathleen Smith. I founded Morph Mom about four years ago. It started as a website where I interview women around the country uh, who tell their stories and share how their journeys and the steps that they took to get there, and in turn want to connect with others looking to do the same. After that, we felt it's great for some to virtually connect with others, but some needed a little bit more personal human interaction. And so we started cocktail parties around the country. And uh, if you go to the website, morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, you'll be able to see when we're coming to a city near you, where we'll be, and uh, what dates will be there. Uh, we've also started some classes, which are really, really fun, and they're different levels. Those who have businesses and need just a little bit of help, maybe with marketing or whatever other suggestions they may need, and those just beginning and trying to decide where to begin. And again, you can go to the website to figure out where those classes are going to be, and they're really fun. And when I say classes, not exactly classes, sort of sitting around with um, like-minded women and coming to the realization that we're all sort of in this boat and we can help each other get through it. Um We also have something Morph Mom goes to. So if you have a charity or you have an event that you would like the support of like-minded women as well, reach out to me through the website and we will come. The army of Morph Moms will come and we will support you. And then most recently, the radio show, which is so much fun. 
it's so exciting to have the opportunity to speak with other women and especially on a night like tonight when I'm sitting here with Alison Richmond, again, the number one internationally best-selling author of now six novels. Um, it's an absolute honor. And Allison, I can't thank you enough for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute thrill. So, I, Allison, just so I um, don't misspeak, um, uh, Allison now has originally had five novels and is most recently her sixth novel, The Velvet Hours, is coming in September or is it officially out now? It came out on Wednesday, on Tuesday, so just up and out two days. Two days, right all right. The presses. Mm-hmm. And if those out there looking to get, how, how is it accessible? How is you know, how can you purchase my book? Yes, uh, you can get it at probably um, almost, uh, hopefully, almost all the bookstores around, and you can get it online. It's called The Velvet Hours. It's a historical novel, and um, just uh, hopefully, my publisher did a good job in making sure it's you know easily accessible. Um, and we're going to come back to the Velvet Hours that we said just came out two days ago. Um, but as I mentioned, this is the sixth novel that you've published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, tell us about sort of your journey into becoming an author and how how you came to where you are today. Okay. Well, I, I guess it's, you know with any story, it's best to start at the beginning. <laughs> I went to Wellesley College in Massachusetts, and I actually wasn't an English major or a creative writing major. I majored in art history, and uh, I come from a background of a mother who is a visual artist and a father who is an electrical engineer, and I think I always imagined that I would be a painter like my, my mother, but when I got to college, I discovered that I just loved art history. I loved telling the story behind a painting and putting it in historical context, um, exploring sort of you know what was happening culturally in the country that the painting um, was created and the relationship between the artist and the muse. All those things I found so intriguing and loved to sort of write about when I was there. And so um, all of my professors used to say to me that I had this, this gift for telling the story behind the painting and that, um, you know... I just didn't know how I was going to put that into a career. And so when I I came to my senior year and I thought, well, what am I going to do with this love of of storytelling and my love of art? I thought to myself, what I would love to do most is to create novels that center around art and which I can research and learn in the process and then create a narrative thread in which my readers are immersed in a very, you know, visual world in which I can bring to life, um, all the historical context of what's happening in that particular time period. And, um, you know, hopefully uh, through the narrative, you learn more than you you would have expected if you were, you know, reading a textbook. So sort of learning through osmosis. Um, But my father, of course, he had just paid for four years of college and thought, well, that doesn't sound like, you know, it's very (laughs) practical. Go get a real job. And, um, I, you know, I think one of the things about me, you know, since I was a little girl was that I'm an extremely tenacious person and I'm always trying to solve, you know, the problem. And so I have actually applied for a grant after I, after I graduated from college to research Japanese artists who studied painting in Europe during the turn of the century. And I got money to, for that grant and I started writing a novel about a Japanese artist who was... Um, sent over to Paris during the turn of the century to learn painting, and I started writing a novel at the same time, and I was able to get the novel published a couple years later, and I've been writing ever since, 
And all of my books, um, as I mentioned before, have some sort of art historical thread. And, um, you know, hopefully, you know, I've been told by my readers is that they're very sensory and visual, my books. It's almost like you're reading a moving painting as you, you know, you go through the pages. So I think I'm just combining my two loves, art and writing. And I, I want to go back to your first novel, it, The Mask Carver. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, Mask Carver's son. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was fascinated by how that came to be and your experience with actual mask carving yourself. Can you tell me about that? At my <laughs> yeah, kids I didn't want to take fascinated. up too much radio space and tell you why I chose a Japanese artist <laughs> in the turn of the century France. So I grew up in a very small town in Long Island, and at the age of 15, my family actually moved to Japan, and I went to the American school in Japan, and although it was an American school, I did start learning Japanese at that time, and I continued Japanese throughout high school and double majored in art history and Japanese studies, and during my junior year abroad, I decided that, you know, kind of learning from my mother, that the best way to learn about a culture is to study one of their traditional arts, and so I apprenticed myself to a Japanese mask carver for what's called the no theater. Um, It's a very esoteric form of theater that um, dates back hundreds of years, and the actors use wooden masks that are carved from a single block of cypress, and the masks literally almost take a life of their own when the actors move very, very slowly. The wood is planed in such a way that they have very delicate shadows, and it looks like the mask is actually moving even though it's carved out of wood. So it took me over nine months to carve a single mask for, you know, when I was an apprentice that year during my, you know, third year in college. And while I was studying with the mask carver, um, I was one of four students. The other three were Japanese. And I thought to myself, this is sort of strange. Here I am studying a traditional Japanese art form. Um, When did the first Japanese start studying European art? And I sort of wanted to reverse the question in my head. And when I got back to college, I you know, mentioned it to my art history professors just because I wanted to read up of, you know, when were the Japanese first exposed to European art? Because I know when you go to Japan now, they love everything Parisian. They love everything, you know, European. So, um, and I also knew from my art history that also the the French were so influenced by the Japanese culture, particularly in the 19th century. There was a whole movement of Orientalism that, you know, they love the Japanese ceramics, the woodblock prints. You know, you have paintings of Monet with his wife dressed up in kimonos. So how did that relationship, you know, what was that exchange? Because I've only read about how the French were influenced by the Japanese, not how the Japanese were influenced by the French. So it was really my professors who encouraged me to use this question to see if I could get an academic grant, um, and I did. And from that, I, um, I just used that year as I was researching the French influence on the Japanese to just start thinking about a novel. Now, having had that unique experience of a Japanese mask carver, working with a mask carver, I thought it would be the perfect character of a young Japanese man who's born in the, the son of a very traditional household, an artistic household, but he and his father have two very distinct artistic passions, ones that are in conflict, the old and the new. And that becomes this metaphor for... Um, you know, really what's happening in Japan as the old generation wants to cling to tradition and the new generation wants to go and, you know, discover Europe and the world. Because up until 1868, actually, Japan practiced an isolation policy. Nothing was allowed into Japan and nothing was allowed, you know, out except through Nagasaki. It was a small port in which the Dutch were allowed to do trade. But it's a fascinating period of history, and I just use this, you know, through the voice of an artist, of someone who, for the first time, travels to a new country is so inspired by French culture and art, 
but can't escape his outsidership because everywhere he goes, he's so visibly different being Japanese. So even though he loves it and has uh, is drawn to the artistic sensibility, he can't escape being Japanese. Uh, and then what happens when he returns home where he's not quite Japanese either because of his experience abroad. So it's a journey of an artist at that time period. And it all came about because, you know, I took a junior year abroad one time. <laughs> so I decided to study mask market making. That is a fascinating story and how it led to your first novel. Never intending. Yeah, it did. And, I, you know, my agent always jokes that I certainly didn't write the typical first novel. You know, my, it's, you know, like a young Japanese artist who travels to Paris. And, um, you know, it's certainly not a young girl going to Brooklyn trying to find a boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> my my very daughter, by novel. the way, is currently junior year abroad over in Florence. And maybe she's listening, hopefully, right now. And Sarah, oh. get to work. <laughs> right now. Well, that's why I think it's so important for children to travel and to be exposed to different cultures and to, you know, just, to, you know, to, to explore because you never know how those experiences are going to impact their later adult lives. And would you ever have thought that would have led to you not just writing one novel but six novels, working on your seventh novel, and not only that – as an international best-selling author on top of all of this. No, I mean, I certainly didn't think that far. I was just trying to think of how I could prove my father wrong and support myself. Um, but um, what I think is interesting is that from that book, you know, which I mentioned began with a question in my head of, you know, when were the first Japanese artists who, who went to Europe and, and what was their experience, every novel thereafter has um, germinated from a, a question as well. There was always a seed of a question which I didn't know the answer to that I was curious about that I sought to answer and create a novel around because I wanted to answer it for myself. So, you know, you can ask me any question about any, you know, what was the question on your fourth novel, Alice, or your third novel, and I will say the novel began when, when I overheard this and I didn't understand it and I was, you know, I couldn't get it out of my head and I needed to know why. And it just builds and builds in my head until I feel like I have to write a book about this. I have to start reading more and getting the answers. And it's sort of just it's layer upon layer until by the last page I hopefully have answered that initial question. So when you're writing the book, how much, I guess percentage-wise, if that's even the right question, is fiction as opposed to how much is historically accurate? Or, or how, do, how do you go about it? How do I go about doing that? Yeah. Well, obviously, the percentage is going to change with with um, each and every book. But I am an, a novelist who really um, tries to ground myself in historical fact because I I won't start writing until often I've done a year's worth of research um, just so that I feel I know the material so well and all those initial questions that I I had um, have been answered. So. Um, for example, you know, with The Mask Carver's Son, the first book, you know, I, I didn't have to do a year's worth of research of knowing, um, you know, the, the Japanese culture because I had lived there for, you know, three years as a child. And so there was, you know, certain life experience that were already built into the research. Uh, but in The Velvet Hours, the, my, you know, most recent book, there, was, there wasn't that much information about um, when we can go into it later the different characters that are, t- are true life characters and so I had to sort of use a skeleton um, structure of what facts I knew from censuses that you know were from the time from from the painting that remained um, who was the artist who painted Martha de Florian who is um, the main character in the Velvet Hours and, and just sort of you know glean as much as I can, but then sort of fill in the parts that I, I didn't know the answer to. 
but it was every historical novel, obviously emo- the emotions will always be imagined. The dialogue is always going to be imagined. So right away, that's already 30% of your book. Uh, but, you know, as much historical fact as I can get into the book, I will put it because I think readers love reading my author's notes and being like, oh, my God, I can't believe that was true or that person <laughs> existed, you know, and, and they always, you know, love that. Sometimes I wish they would read it first so that they'd appreciate all <laughs> the little details that are true that are woven into the novel. So when you're sitting and doing the research, are the characters, uh-huh. even the fictional characters, coming, are you beginning to create the, the fictional characters as well as you're doing the research or how does it unfold? a good question. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a writer who doesn't work with an outline. Mm-hmm. I always know the beginning and the end of, of the novel before I start working, but I don't know anything in between. And I think I, I work like that because I love that sort of process, that organic process of creating and knowing that something will be unexpected that will reveal itself on the page while I'm writing. It's very much like painting, that you, if your painting is still life, you know what you're painting, but you don't know, you know how the brushstrokes are going to capture the images before you. So that journey to me is, is, you know, one of the the most, you know, wonderful things about writing is the, the unexpected quality of what, you know, might happen. Um, that said, I do feel that with almost all of my characters, I hear their voice, I mean, without sounding like I'm, you know, <laughs> hearing voices <laughs> in my head, um, I do hear, I mean, I do hear them speaking. I do, he- you know, I feel like by the time I start writing, I, I know their background so well that, um you know, they have a distinct voice in my head that I want to I want to bring to life. So, but it's it's, it's interesting. There's it's, they um they they are also an ex, you know a certain extension of, of yourself. You know that you you when you're creating emotional scenes, you you think back of your own child or your own experience and try and you know bring bring that into the into the scene to make it seem. You know, my books. I don't want them to just be historically accurate I want them to be emotionally authentic and so you know trying to bring my own experience into those scenes I, you know sometimes you know inevitable <laughs> I was going to ask you that so when for the, the characters as you're reading through the historical research mm-hmm. are you reminded maybe of a childhood friend or a relative or somebody that sort of would fit into this scenario somehow or there yes I mean absolutely like I always say that the Velvet Hours is sort of an elegy to my grandmother she passed away in January she was 99 she was one of the most elegant women who ever lived Um, you know I said at her funeral that I I always felt you know guilty if I wasn't wearing lipstick when I came (laughs) to visit her you know (laughs) and I'd always try and brush my hair before I walked through her door and um, she was just someone who loved you know, to appreciate beauty, that and, and that it didn't necessarily take money to appear beautiful, and that you know, beauty was something that came from within and from sort of illuminating something about yourself that um, someone might not see at first glance. And how do you do that? And you know, how do you make your home beautiful with with small touches and details? And so, when I was creating the character of Martha de Florian in the Velvet Hours, I really used my grandmother who was born, you know, in 1917, even though um, um, Martha de was born several decades earlier, I, I used my grandmother as an inspiration, just the way she lived, she dressed, and even her, you know, her small, delicate gestures, I, I used that for inspiration. It must be such an exciting way to celebrate people who have touched you in your life or people who have made some sort of a, a mark in your life somehow along the way. And I... Mm. I and, 
And sometimes are you almost surprised at, um, you know, you know those that have made a tremendous impact upon you, like your, like your grandmother. But sometimes mm-hmm. as you're creating characters, are you almost surprised at the memories it brings back or, or maybe the person that for some reason is brought into the story? That, that relates well, again, back it goes back, that. yes, to the unexpected while right. writing a novel. Um, that you are always surprised that all of a sudden you might have a, um, a flash of memory of someone that you knew in your childhood, like you said, a friend, or you know, perhaps it's an old paramour, and, and you know, something that was buried deep within, and all of a sudden while you're writing it resurfaces, and then it ends up being threaded into your story. That's you know, it's it's always interesting how that happens because you know you're. Some days you're just pulling from <laughs> the clouds. <laughs> By the way, I have to thank you for explaining what I was trying to ask you. <laughs> no, I understood. Much more eloquently than I was able to question you. No, it made perfect that's exactly sense. Don't the answer. worry. <laughs> thank you. I knew what I was trying to say. Um, so again, for those of you joining us tonight, welcome to Morph Mom Moments. And if you'd like to call in, it's 212-631-7553. And I am sitting here, and I can't even believe I'm sitting here, with internationally best-selling author, Allison Richmond. And it, it really is, Allison, an absolute honor to be sitting here with you. And we're discussing um, sort of Allison's journey, a, a true morph mom, a mother of two, and how she got to where she is today, and how never maybe originally intending to be an author has now produced her sixth novel and is working on her seventh novel as well. And we're just sort of discussing how the journey began and how she has come to where she is today. Um, Allison, I want to skip to your third novel, um, and the novel about Van Gogh. And I found it was fascinating about we talk about this and how you became interested in that subject matter, and uh-huh. um, and my understanding. So the book was basically a recreation of the last seventy days of his life. Yes. And, so that came about because you know it was something. Again, unexpected. I went to the Metropolitan Museum, Museum of Art. Uh, of, you know that book probably came out seven years ago. So let's say ten years ago, they were having a exhibit on Dr. Gachet, who was the last doctor who treated Vincent Van Gogh before he committed suicide. His art collection, and as you walk through the art collection, you not only saw the paintings of. Vincent Van Gogh that he had um, been given by Vincent's brother after Vincent's suicide, but also the paintings that he and his son copied of Vincent's paintings, because they were dilettante artists themselves who were sort of trying to practice by copying Vincent. And then they showed photographs in the exhibit of the the Gachet household, and you could see how the house after Vincent's death was, was kept almost as a shrine. They had still still lifes on the table that Vincent had painted. The walls were completely cluttered with the paintings of Vincent van Gogh. They had pictures of the sun next to his grave. And as I left the museum, I thought, this is such a strange household. What happened here? And, you know, why did, the, you know, Dr. Gachet and his son cling so much to Vincent's memory? So I bought the catalog just thinking, like, there must be a novel in here. And as I was combing through the catalog, I found a footnote that said that uh, Dr. Gachet actually had a daughter by the name of Marguerite who sat for two paintings uh, for Vincent, one of herself at the piano, called Marguerite at the piano, and one of herself in the garden, and that the painting of her at the piano had been given to her as a gift by the artist, and it hung above her Above her bed in her in her bedroom for for several decades, and it was her cherished belonging. And when her father died, and the state went to her and her brother, 
the art world was taken by surprise. One of all the paintings that they had in their collection, the first to be sold was the painting of Marguerite at her piano. And people speculated that the brother, jealous that he had never been painted by Vincent, had forced his sister to sell the painting. And then I thought, ah, I have a novel. (laughs) So what happened in that household that Marguerite who was not really mentioned in this, you know, exhibit, um, you know, there was no image of her, was actually, you know, the final muse for Vincent. And I was fascinated by this relationship between Dr. Gachet and Vincent, you know, the doctor-patient relationship, but also because Dr. Gachet was painted by Vincent, the artist-muse relationship. And I thought, who would be better to tell the story of Vincent's last days than Marguerite, who was obviously a voyeur of what was happening around her in her household. I, and, I, and I just loved how you sort of focus on the certain time period of the book, too. I thought that was so mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, what I really love in my, my craft, I guess, is to bring a voice to life that otherwise would have been kept quiet all these years, you know. So the voice of Marguerite, who was rendered a footnote in an art catalog to give her a voice and to kind of give her a story, it, it, it just, you know, brings light on this, this life that so many had tried to sort of, um, you know, squash into darkness. And, and in my new book, The Velvet Hours, too, there was this, you know, we can go discuss that, but, you know, who was the character of Martha de Floria, and how did she come to be painted by this very famous artist, Boldini, and why was her portrait in her apartment shuttered for 70 years with no one knowing about it? So, giving, you know, there's so little known about her, giving her a voice and a history, and bringing her to life, and in a way, I mean, I think every writer, when you create a character that's based on a true person, you're helping to keep that person's spirit alive. Um, There's a sense of um, immortality when you write about someone that they live within the pages forever, which is kind of exciting. Um, and I just, I love what I do. And and we are all so grateful that you do it. <laughs> yes, we love <laughs> what you do as well. Um, and, and again, for those joining us, I'm here with Allison Richmond tonight. Um, and we're going to get to her most recent novel that was just recently released two days ago, as a matter of fact, The Velvet Hours. But I, I want to just step ahead to, or step back rather, to your fourth novel, The Lost Wife, which is mm-hmm. about to come out or soon to come out. Is that correct? It's a major motion picture as well? Um, it's in pre-production to be a major motion picture. So we're, you know, I've been told anything can change any day, but <laughs> so far so good. <laughs> um, which is yes. so exciting. And I have to say that something in, in The Lost Wife triggered something with me as well. And, and we'll get to that, but um, if you would talk a little bit about the lost wife and how mm-hmm. it was a separation of a couple for sixty years, um, thinking mm-hmm. each other had not survived the war. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you a little funny story because it, it has it's connected to being a a, a busy mom, a new and a mother of two very young children. When I was writing the lost wife, so I had just had my second child, and I at that time had a babysitter once a week, and I. That was the only time I had eight hours a week that I was supposed to be able to devote to, to my writing. And I had written three novels before I had children, but I, you know, I was really struggling to write the fourth with two. It was very, it was, it was very difficult. And I had this, as I was struggling to, you know, to, to sort of figure out how I was going to maintain being a writer and being a mom, 
I thought to myself, Allison, you, you don't have it that bad. I mean, clearly other artists have been able to create under much more difficult circumstances. And immediately my mind went to the Holocaust, and I thought, God, I mean, were artists able to create when everything was taken away from them? And I didn't know the answer. Again, so this is the question of the lost wife. Could art be created if everything was stripped away from someone? Would someone still find the means to express their artistic spirit? So I started digging and started researching a group of artists that had worked in Czechoslovakia at a concentration camp in, called Terezin. It's in German. It's called Terezinstadt. And I started to find evidence of how people were able to still steal supplies in, in order to create and how there are all sorts of stories. But I hadn't started writing a single page of the novel. I was just in the research stage. And one day my agent called and she said, I'm just checking in. I know, you, you know <laughs> you're struggling with two little kids, but I want to make sure you're working on another novel and you haven't given up. And I said, no, I haven't given up. I have a great idea. I'm going to be working on a novel on how an artist survives the Holocaust because of their artistic skills. And there was dead silence on the phone. And I said, don't you think it's a great idea? And she let out this, you know, very long sigh. And she said, Alice, I actually don't think it's a good idea. I think that's going to be a very difficult novel to sell. And, you know, I hung up the phone. I was so frustrated, but she didn't seem enthusiastic about it. And But I was paying $15 an hour for a babysitter at that time. And I thought, well, now what am I going to do? I can't, like, waste my time. And I, you know, back then my husband used to joke around that when he'd come home from work, I looked like I had just escaped from, you know, a prison. You know, I'd walk down the stairs after putting the second one to sleep, and my hair was all crazy. I never could set, schedule time to, you know, take care of myself. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go get a trim down the street at this little hair salon near me. So... I told the babysitter I was going to go out and get a cut, and I sat down in the chair of the woman who cut my hair, and I was in no mood to have a conversation because I could just keep on hearing my agent saying, I don't think that's a good idea, I don't think it's a good idea. And out of the corner of my right ear, I heard the um, owner of the salon telling a story to his client about a, a client who had been in the day before, who had gone to a wedding, where at the um, rehearsal dinner, the bride's groom, the bride's grandmother and the groom's grandfather had never met before and throughout the evening the groom's mm -hmm. grandfather kept on saying to the bride's grandmother you look so familiar I've known you from somewhere I know you from somewhere she was trying to focus on the festivities around mm -hmm. her and her granddaughter and not been paying that much attention but by the end of the evening he insisted he knew her and then he said to her will you pull up my your sleeve and when she did, he saw the six-number tattoo of Auschwitz inked into her skin, and he looked at her, and he said, you were my wife. And I was like, what? Oh <laughs> you know, I can write an entire book around a single question. All of a sudden, my mind was filled with all these, you know, unanswered questions, like, why did, you know, they lose contact with each other? With each other? You know, how did they first fall in love? Um, how did they get separated from each other? How, you know, how did they come to marry different people and not know the other person existed? And then most importantly, like, how did they survive? So from all those different questions, I decided to create what became The Lost Wife. It begins in that wedding scene with him saying, pull up your sleeve, um, you are my wife. And then it goes back into time to be 1938 Czechoslovakia, right before the Nazis, you know, come into, into um, the country. Um, and as an anti-Semitism is sweeping through Europe, and she's a young art student. Um, and as things get stripped and stripped away from her, they become, I don't want to give the whole story away, but actually, you know, that's, that's how it began, from in one question, but then another experience that brings a whole other bit of questions, and then the end result becomes a novel. That is just a 
chilling story too that you you actually so did you ever meet the the woman by chance so i didn't i didn't meet the couple i tried to meet them i asked the um salon owner if he could call the woman who was his client to see if she could make an introduction and then he did and then she said she didn't feel comfortable doing it and at first i was very discouraged but I had already done almost a year's worth of research on these artists in Czechoslovakia who um, had worked in the camp and forged their own resistance through their artwork. And so I knew that this couple was actually Polish, and they had been separated in a death march and um, were told erroneously that each person had died at the end of the war. And my characters couldn't be Polish. You know, they had to be Czech, and I knew that one of them had to come to America beforehand. So I just used the actual reunion as as a way of drawing the reader into the original subject matter that I was interested in. But I was able to frame the novel so that it was a love story, not a story that was purely about the Holocaust through an artist's eyes. It became a more universal story about how, as I said, does one survive after great suffering and loss? And and more philosophically, how does one bring light into one's life after so much darkness? And I always like to explain it with light and dark because... Truly, The Lost Wife is written sort of, you know, in this chiaroscuro of almost like a charcoal painting. So, um, you know, it just was a gift. You know, it just goes to show you that you can have one conversation that leads you to go someplace during your day and you overhear another story and it opens up your novel in a completely unexpected way. And that's what kind of connects back to what I was saying in the beginning of the book, I mean, beginning of the interview, which is the unexpected things that happen along the way while crafting a novel is kind of the most amazing thing, you know, part of the process. And I would imagine that is probably a great quality to have as an author, though, to be flexible with the direction because some things happen and, you know, you're not stuck in one thing. You're open to sort of, you know, one door closing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I can read a novel and know when it's it's so tightly um, wedded to its original outline because you kind of feel like you're being dictated where you go, whereas I hope with my novels that they flow in a way that you you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. And I, I always describe them that they're, you know, brushstrokes that move you through the painting. But there's lots of negative and positive space where there's time to breathe and, and think. You know, it's not always super saturated every page. There's some pages that are sparsely written and others where a lot of things happen. But in the end, the overall composition, you know, hopefully does resemble a, a painting. I think it is, and I I love everything you've done, and this one touched home a little bit more so than others, Um, and to bring in a very quick story of my own, my grandfather was in World War II, he was a fighter pilot, and he Uh was shot down and ended up at Stalag 17 in a prison camp for two and a half years, Uh and the report to my grandmother, who at the time was um, newly pregnant, actually, with my mother, was he, there was no way anyone survived the crash. So for eight months, or, or I guess nine months, she had my mother. She thought he was dead. They said, no, there's no way. There's no way he's alive. And again, this is not 60 years. This is mm-hmm. short of a, an entire year. But this really hit home with this. So the Red Cross showed up one day. I think at this point, maybe it was nine months. And they said, you know what? He's not dead. We found him. He's alive. He's at Stalag 17. And he remained there for another year and a half or so. But just... I, know, I just got chills listening to your story. I mean, it's you know, it's it's incredible, and we're so spoiled now, thinking that we get information instantaneously. But back then, there were so many you know people who for years didn't know what happened to their you know their relatives or you know mistakes that made that prevented them knowing that one was actually in another country. And you know, you were still hearing about these stories that they didn't know. You know, one you know someone survived the war, and one went one country, and another went to another country. So. It's incredible. 
And just that it portrays that how, you know, true love withstands and, and the perseverance. And there was just so much about everything you write. And I think that's what's so significant to you about what everything you write is there is the historical part of it. So you know, there is truth to it. And, and then on top mm-hmm. of it, there are these characters that are relatable characters that you could, that I, I love that you can bring the fictional and weave it in so well to the historical. Because as I said, like but in my well, part, thank you. I I think what you know the, what I aspire to do is that by creating characters where mm-hmm. emotions are authentic and and the feelings are universal, that my reader can connect to the stories even if they take place seventy years before, a hundred years before, because you know emotions like grief and and love and sorrow and jealousy these are you know universal emotions that that make us human. And and that's what like when you as you're reading it, it you, it's relatable. Every single thing you write is that right. relatable. Right. And, and I have to add one more crazy fact to that story. <laughs> and as you're a painter and an artist and come from an artist's, you know, a history of artists, um, my grandfather in Stalag 17, one of the fellow um, prisoners, was one mm-hmm. of the main illustrators for Disney. And mm-hmm. somehow they managed to keep, um, so they would save dog tags, they would save anything they could under boards in you know the, the prison that they were in but one of the illustrators would continually i don't know how he got them um draw pictures of planes and planes being shot down and so my grandfather came back with all this artwork from being in stalag 17 and as you were as a painter and author the significance of the artistry and of the drawings tells as much of a story i think as his words told of the story of what it was right. like when he was there right and then you also see, like, how did they create those drawings? Was they, you know, the airplanes? Was it through, you know, charcoal from a fire? Was it through, right. you know, graphite that was found from something else? Like, they, um, the ingenious ways that they were able to find materials is so fascinating, too. It just really shows the, you know, that spirit, that, that, that sense of defiance. Like, I'm going to do this at any, you know, cost. I'm going to find a way. I find that, you know, so, you know, inspiring really inspiring but and that's what you bring to us though through your stories and through your novels is you show us the perseverance through history how people did manage this and how they got through it and you make right. it so relatable that that's what i find so exciting about everything that you write and well, for those, thank you oh and for those of you oh, you're welcome thank you for everything <laughs> you do um for those of you joining us tonight it's an absolute honor once again to be sitting with allison richmond number one internationally best-selling author of now Six novels, working on her seventh, and we're now going to get to The Velvet Hours, which is her most recent novel, um, out as of two days ago, and I'm assuming most of you out there already have it, and if not, you need to get it immediately. Um, But, Allison, tell us about The Velvet Hours and how that came to be. Well, it's a great story because it involves another mother. Um, A friend of mine sent me an article that she had read online about an apartment that was discovered in 2010 that had been mysteriously shuttered for 70 years. And the apartment, when it was opened, was was filled with arts and antiques, um, covered in a thin veil of dust, and over the, the um, marble mantle was a beautiful portrait of the original owner, a woman whose name was Martha de Florian, a courtesan in the Belle Epoque, which was uh, the turn of the century, Par- you know, Paris, 1890s. And the painting was done by a very famous portrait painter by the name of Giovanni Baldini. Um, He was a contemporary of John Singer Sargent. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Sargent, but he um, did a very famous portrait that they probably know called Madame, um, the portrait of Madame X. 
and uh, many of his paintings are can be seen around the world. Boldini, too, was a very high society portrait painter. He did uh, Consuela Vanderbilt, um, among others. But no one even knew this painting existed, and certainly no one knew why the apartment was closed uh, just before the Germans came into Paris and never opened again, yet the maintenance was paid for over 70 years. And the article went on to say how Martha de Florian's granddaughter uh, closed the apartment just as the Germans were coming into Paris and paid the maintenance all those years, never returned, and her heirs, when she passed away in 2010, that was only when they discovered that this apartment existed. So I've spent the past 40 minutes telling you that every novel of mine begins with a question. This article was filled with questions. Who was Martha de Florian? How did she come to be painted by Giovanni Boldini? Why did her granddaughter close the apartment in 1940, just as the Germans were coming into Paris, and never return to it, yet pay the maintenance for all those years? So I decided I was going to seek the answers and try and create um, a narrative in which um, I brought to life Martha's um, ascent from um, a research showed that she had been born the daughter of a laundress in a very poor part of Paris, and she herself was a seamstress um, and gave birth to a child by the name of Henri, who later became a pharmacist. These were all clues that I knew that I had to work in, into the novel, and that she had somehow found herself ensconced in this beautiful apartment in the ninth arrondissement of Paris, um, it's called La Square Bruguère, and uh, collected all these interesting, you know, antiques and porcelains, and had her, you know, had this magnificent portrait of her done by Boldini. And inside her vanity, love letters were found tied in satin ribbon, not only from Giovanni Boldini, the artist who painted her, but several French politicians and other paramours. So she was certainly going to be one of the most fun characters to recreate, and um, you know, and, and you know, and had such fine taste in art and antiques. And the and in her portrait, she's wearing this absolutely, you know, decadent, you know, gown that has these the silk, you know, gazar sleeves that look like pink clouds, and it's falling you know, centrally over her, you know, off of her shoulders, and it's what's called a pigeon bodice, um, which is it's sort of. Um, almost like a sweetheart neckline, and it has this beautiful sash that you can see that the artist had uh, done uh, you know, small spa- sparkle sequence on it. And around her neck is a beautiful necklace of pearls. So that actually comes into play in my novel, too, because I look at the pearl necklace as a novel, and I think, well, who gave her that necklace? And what does it stand for? You know, was it given as a gift to commemorate something? And, um, you know, who was the person who gave it to her? You know, again, more questions coming up with answers. And with those questions, characters, you know, have to be created. So hopefully that, you know, makes people interested in wanting to buy the Velvet Hours. I can't wait. (laughs) I need to know. (laughs) Who gave her the pearl necklace? I need to know right now. (laughs) So how, so where do you begin your research with? Like, where do you go to do the research? Is it online? No, I mean, I don't do a lot of, I mean, there's you know, a little bit, I guess, you can do online, but I'm always a little distrust, distrustful of online sources. So for the beginning of, of the Velvet Hours, what I did is that I wanted to see Boldini's artwork because there had been conflicting reports of when the portrait was done. People, you know, had said in different articles online that the portrait was done in 1898, um, and others had said it had been done in 1888. And some reported that her her 
that Martha de Flores' age in the portrait was 24, and others said she was 34. And so I knew I had to sort of know how old she was when she was painted, because that had, you know, that would set the stage of where she was in her life and what I had to cover before that time period. That was going to, the, the painting was going to be sort of the marker, which everything else had to sort of revolve around. And so the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, I live in New York, actually has quite a few Baldini paintings. And I wrote to um, one of their assistant curators there, and, and she was able to bring three paintings of, of his out of storage so I could look at the brushstroke, and I could see actually how the brushstroke actually evolved from his earlier paintings till when he was in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, he was called the King of Swoosh. And when you look at the portrait online, you can see how... Um, his brushstrokes are very exuberant, and um, they almost seem like cloud-like. So he's bringing this energy to the painting. And he was also very well known for almost making it seem like his his women were lit with from within, that their skin was sort of, you know, burning off with a, with a special light. And so I, I knew that came earlier than... You know, 18, it couldn't have been 1888 that it was done. It had to have been 1890. In my mind, 1898. So I did that, and then of course I wanted to research. You know, where was the apartment? I, I tried getting someone in Europe to contact the auctioneer who had handled the auctioning of the portrait and the contents of the apartment. I also wanted to see if I could find the you know to read the love letters that were discovered written by Boldini. But the auctioneer said that the family had burned the letters of Boldini, and that. Uh, they didn't, you know, they weren't letting visitors see the apartment. The contents had already been sold. I don't actually believe that the Baldini letters were burned. That seems sort of incredulous to me. I think it was a way to get, you know, pes- pesky writers who wanted to write a novel away from them and bothering <laughs> them. But, you know, again, I always try and make lemonade out of lemons the same way that I couldn't meet the couple who um, had inspired that story that I, you know, overheard at the wedding with the lost wife. Not knowing what they said, I could invent what they said, and they, you know, so it gave me sort of a carte blanche to sort of create what I wanted, you know, well, you know, the relationship between Martha de Florian and Boldini to be. And um, so then I, you know, I did go to Paris. Um, I made two trips to Paris so that I could explore the area of which the apartment was um, located, um, the places that Martha de Florian would have gone to. Uh, you know, the street. I walked the same streets that she walked. I tried to find cafes that were in existence at the time period in which she lived. Um, I interviewed people who were um, alive in Paris during World War II for certain details because my novel alternates between the Belle Epoque and World War II. Martha's actually telling her story to her granddaughter, Solange, so you learn about who the grand... Because I needed to answer, of course, who was Solange and why did she close this apartment never return, keeping it as a shrine to her grandmother. Um... I went to Ferrara, Italy, where Boldini was born, as well as Venice. There's a wonderful cafe in Venice. It's, I think, one of the world's oldest cafes. I don't think it's the oldest, but it's certainly one of them, called Cafe Florian. It's in San Marco, and probably many of your your listeners have been there. And I actually created a scene in which Martha is named Martha de Florian from the cafe because she's not actually born. That's not her original name. I was able to find that on her birth certificate she's born Mathilde Bogiron, and she later changes her name to be de Florian. And I, you know, a special scene in the book. And um, you know, it's just it was a lot of fun to write this book. Very different than writing, obviously, a Holocaust novel like The Lost Wife. Um, this was really 
a lot of fun researching women who, you know, at that time who were considered either kept women or courtesans, women of cultivated pleasure, very far from being cheap or tawdry. These women were, you know, often self-educated but very refined, had very high taste in jewelry and fashion and beauty regime. And, um, you know, it, it echoes a very different time when people had a lot of time to take care of themselves if they had someone who was obviously financially supporting them. And so... It's, it was an interesting character to, to write because she's certainly a woman who, um, you know, has a lot more time to take care of herself than you or I, I think, too. Listening to your journey, just mm-hmm. investigating this and going from Paris to Italy to Venice to, to everything that you were doing uh, was as, I, I could have sat here for hours listening to that. It's absolutely fascinating how you trace down the characters and then create the novel based upon the factual things right, that you discovered right. along the way. Absolutely fascinating that you went oh. through that. Well, I love it. I mean, again, it's a sort of metaphor for like the the armat you know um, armature that a sculptor might do. You have that skeletal frame, and you're you're putting layers of clay on until you have the final. You know, mold that you want. Um, it's the same sort of thing. You have working pieces, but then there's things that you have to, you know, layer upon in order to have a novel in the end. Are there certain things, and again, as you're back, for those of you who are listening and who may have not heard earlier on, that Allison was a painter as well. So are, are there certain things that, so when you go into a painting and you say, you know, these are the basic things I want and mm-hmm. you can put them there, but when you're going into the story historically trying to find certain facts, what if you can't find, you really mm-hmm. want to find or center on one of those certain things and you can't get to the bottom of one of them? What do you do then? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, you know, it always happens in every novel where you have a moment where, you're, where you have a missing piece and you need that piece in, for everything else to sort of fall together. And again, I always know where I have to end up and then that missing piece is preventing me from ending there. <laughs> it's almost like a detour in the road. Typically what happens is I actually have to take a break away from the manuscript and sort of just live life a little bit. And then it, a solution usually appears. Other times it might be my husband who I'm talking <laughs> about the book, and I might say, you know, I need this to happen, but I don't know how that's going to happen. And he, in the past, he has come up with some, you know, plot twists that have helped me get to where I needed to. So I'm, I'm sort of indebted to him for being able to. He's a lawyer, so I think sometimes logically he sees the best route <laughs> to the destination that I don't see right away. And and you're a mother of two. Are mm-hmm. your kids involved in the writing process ever? Like, do you share, do they know what you're writing about? I know they're younger, but mm-hmm. how does that work? Well, at this point, I mean, they're 10 and 13, so they're definitely part of, you know, the process and that they know what I'm writing about. Uh, my daughter is an avid reader. She's 10, but she reads all the time, and, and um, she loves, you know, learning about what I'm, I'm working on. And she was the one who found an image of the Peacock Room. I don't know if you ever saw that in the Freer-Sackler Museum down in Washington, D.C. It's uh, a room that was commissioned um, by um, a wealthy, I think he was from Michigan, industrialist, who commissioned um, Whistler to decorate, to paint a room for him. And he had a painting of Whistler above the mantle and, and gilded bamboo shelves with Chinese ceramics all around the, on the walls. And 
so much of the painting in the room reminded me of the images of Martha de Florian's apartment that were published. And when she brought it to me, I thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic. I'm going to model the apartment on those images to sort of recreate it. And, you know, then I took her down to D.C. to see the Peacock Room since she had been the first person to bring it to, you know, I knew it existed, but she refreshed my memory. And then on one of my second trips, I actually brought her to Paris with me so that she mm-hmm. could sort of walk in the footsteps of Martha de Florian with me as, as well. So she's definitely an active participant. And then I'm working on a, my seventh novel now that is um, going to be different and has um, a young boy who loves baseball in it and my son who's you know, a huge fan of baseball. Uh, so much of this novel, I think, is inspired by him, the next novel. <laughs> oh, that is so exciting that your kids can be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And to understand, it's, nice. it's really it's much easier now than it was when you know <laughs> they were infants, and I'd be on tour and bringing my breast pump with me and <laughs> something in a bus station. That was far from glamorous. But I think something that they will always remember and mm. and, and understand. I mean, when when they understand that their mother worked this hard and that they were brought into this, I think it's so important for these kids to see this now and to see that you can do it. It's not always easy, and sometimes it's terrible, but. Right, you get through it. right. You do it. Right. I'm hoping. <laughs> I, and I think I it's the inspirational morph moms out there. I mean, that this is exactly why I sort of started this whole thing to show it's not easy, but you can do it. And, right. and, and there are some days that are absolutely terrible, and there's some days that they're absolutely great. And then somehow in the end, you, you look back and you think, I, I got through this. And the best part was that my kids were able to see that I was able to do this. So I think it's so right. inspiring that you brought your kids into this world and allowed them to be a part of it and, and to sort of help you with the research and help you with the with building this as, as it right. becomes yet another novel. Right. I mean, I'm, what I'm trying to do, I, I think, by bringing them into, at this point, what I'm doing in the research is to just, again, inspire curiosity. Because no matter what field they end up doing, to be curious, um, to think outside the box, to, you know, to use a question to fuel, you know, a passion to find a solution, I think are all great tools that, you know, will hopefully help them when they become adults. I love that part of it. I love that the inspiration to many of these novels were, was that there was a question and you needed the answer. Then you were going to find that answer. I love that that is an inspiration to many of these novels. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, I love everything that you've done. I can't believe we're down to one minute. I could talk to you forever. Oops. I could talk to you forever. I apologize for that. Um, Allison Richmond, the number one internationally best-selling author. Um, uh, we are now with her sixth novel, about to be seventh novel, but the most recent, The Velvet Hours, just came out two days ago. And Allison, will you just let everyone again know how they can get the novel? Well, hopefully... Um... The Velvet Hours will be available in all their local independent bookstores and all the big chains. Um, if my publisher did a good job, hopefully it'll be in <laughs> other big outlets like Costco and, uh, you know, the airport. But I haven't gotten a chance to double-check that yet. But it's always available uh, online as well at um, all the online sellers. So I know all your readers are familiar with all the big ones. I don't want to favor one more than the other. <laughs> but at this point in my career, hopefully you can find my books at most of the big places and smaller places too. And if you can't, always ask your local independent bookseller to order you a copy because I know they will be more than willing and happy to do it. It was an absolute honor to have you on tonight. And again, this is Allison Richmond, um, who just came out with her sixth novel, The Velvet Hours, is working on her seventh novel. Um, and as we discussed tonight, she's an absolute inspiration to all, a mother of two who 
really wrote these novels to answer questions that she wanted answered. And um, for those of you who have not read them, go out there and get them right now. And Allison, I hope you come back and join us again. And thank you, thank you, thank you. What a great night. Thank you for everyone listening tonight. Um, we'll see you again next Thursday night. Good night. You served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. Hi, I'm Janice Ian. Do you remember how excited you were at the start of summer every year and how the summer just started to drag on after a few months and you couldn't wait to get back to school, see your old friends, make new friends, get new books and a new locker and a clean slate? Well, you should have been excited about music class, too, because that was a special room where you went to sing, perform with your friends, and learn all kinds of interesting stuff about great composers, instruments, different kinds of music and songs. We remember our music teachers because they were so passionate about helping us learn to love music. They helped to spark a love for listening to notes and voices and rhythms that continues to enrich our lives even today. I bet your kids feel the same way about music class. Ask them and make sure they get involved with music in school and in their lives. A PSA brought to you by MENC, the National Association for Music Education, and the National Anthem Project, the campaign to restore America's voice through music education. Music, part of a sound education. You are listening to the title track off the new City Boys All-Stars album, When You Needed Me. The City Boys All-Stars will be performing at the Cutting Room on 44 East 32nd Street in New York City, 10 p.m. hit. For ticket information, call 212-691-1900. Once again, City Boys All-Stars, Cutting Room, August 28th. Hello, this is a PSA for City World Radio. On Mondays, we have first show, 6 o'clock, Keeping It Real with Jazzy Joy and company. At 7 o'clock, we have AC Low Show or the Bill Russo Show. At 8 o'clock, we have the Johnny Mandolin Show, and Johnny is the president and runner of the City World Radio Network. At 9 o'clock, we have Janetta's Vendetta, Pocket Trumpeter. At 10, we have Garage Mania with Robbie Russell and Nurse Cheryl. On Tuesday at 6, we have DJ John Lombardi. At 8 o'clock, we have Inside Tourism with Joe. At 10, we have the Swinger Swinger Lifestyle with Jack and Jill. On Wednesday, we have Pearls of the Sea with Lisa and C. 